0: Brian Marcioni is going to be sharing with us today. And uh, this man is a gifted communicator of God's Word. He's had an impact on uh, all three churches here in New England. he's going to be sharing an extension of uh, what Justin began over the last couple weeks. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this man. We thank you that you use him in the, the marketplace, Lord, that his engineering skills to work with artificial hearts, Lord, and we believe that that is a spiritual work as well. And we thank you that in him and through him you've made your word alive. So do it again, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what you are saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen
1: good morning. Thank you for having me back. It's an honor to be here again. It's been a long time actually since I've been here, so I'm I'm honored to round out this series and Galatians that we have and and talk to you about these last two sections that we're going to do through this this study. And I want to ask you this morning, if you've ever had a moment in your life where you're having a conversation, you're reading a book, watching a TV show, movie, whatever it is, and, and something happens, there's a statement made, there's a scene, something like that, that just, it just doesn't seem to fit in. You, maybe, maybe hours later, you're like, what was that? You know, that doesn't, doesn't quite jive with everything else that was going on at the time. And I might date myself by this reference, but many of you here might remember the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, Right. So it was a children's movie, a children's movie, released in the early 70s, starring Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka. And it's basically this, this musical fantasy film based on a book by Rule Dahl that follows four children and their families as they visit this fantastical... It's really a magical, borderline magical candy factory, Okay. And so there are these funny, over-the-top characters and dance numbers. There's slapstick comedy and colorful, elaborate scenery. Literal rivers of chocolate and bubblegum plants and all this kind of crazy stuff. Cute dance numbers. Just about everything you'd expect from a children's movie, right? Except for one thing. Holy cow. So there's this scene in the middle, all right, so there's a scene in the middle of the movie, right, where Willy Wonka is taking his guests on a boat ride, maybe you remember this, and they go through this darkened tunnel, all right, and, and Willy Wonka starts singing this really creepy song in a low voice. And there's this crescendo, and he keeps singing it louder and louder and repeating it until he's screaming this verse at the top of his lungs. And meanwhile, behind all the, all the kids and families, there are these images projected on a screen of chickens being decapitated and, and worms crawling over, over a corpse and flying cockroaches, okay? Okay. It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying, especially in a children's movie. Actually, if you Google, like, scariest movie moments of all time, this scene actually makes it on the list, along with others, right? So it's, it's really scary. And then the scene ends. They get off the boat, and the movie carries on. Nobody talks about it again. It's not referenced later on. It doesn't, it doesn't explain some detail. It doesn't move the plot along at all. I mean, you, you could cut this scene out of the movie, and the movie would hang together just fine. Right? Probably a little bit better, actually. <laughs> right? And you get back into the movie, and you, you forget about it, typically, because, it, again, it isn't important to the movie at all, but maybe you wonder, like, how that was really weird. Like, what was up with that scary tunnel scene? That just doesn't make sense. And you shrug it off, and you just move on. Well, the text we're going to look at in Galatians today, at first blush at least, is somewhat like that. I mean, you can read all of Galatians, but you'll either forget or ignore this text because it doesn't really seem to fit in the first time you read it through. I was actually talking with a friend recently, and I told him, you know, I was preaching from Galatians 4. And according to him, some years ago, his youngest son took a black marker to his Bible and wrote all over this portion of Galatians 4. And he joked that he just skips over it now because, you know, you don't need it anyway when you read Galatians, right? And we laughed because he has a very high regard for Scripture, actually. He was joking. But also because there's, there's some truth in that. It, it seems odd as you read this. So to see what I mean... Let's walk through Galatians thus far. Let's start at chapter 1 and just walk through a little bit and catch what Paul is trying to say to us before we get to chapter 4. So when we start off in chapter 1, right right away we see what's on Paul's mind. He says in verses 6 through 7, I am astonished that you are so quickly turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all, This gospel that I preached to you, by the way, Galatians, has its origins with God. It was revealed to me, he says. I didn't invent it. Nobody taught it to me. Even James, Peter, and John, those esteemed pillars and leaders of the church, even they affirmed this gospel that I was preaching. They didn't add anything to it, Paul says. They actually gave him the right hand of fellowship, Right? So Paul is overtly and publicly acknowledged as an equal partner in preaching the gospel. So the letter starts out with the astonishment that the Galatians are deserting this gospel, this gospel he preached to them, and he goes on to offer this compelling defense of the legitimacy of this gospel, which is really God's gospel, not Paul's. And as you move on to chapter 2, Paul launches in to his principal proposition in the letter. And this is the main focus of, of Paul's argument here. He's saying, all we have as Christians, all we have is received by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not by obeying the law. In other words, it's not because we obey a series of ritual and ethical rules That we're Christians. It's because we have faith in Jesus. And Paul expands on this in three ways. He says that we are made right with God, we're justified, not by the law, but by faith. He goes on to say that we receive the Holy Spirit, not by the law, but by faith. And we are adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. So we're sons and daughters of Abraham, the language Paul uses. This happens not by the law, but by faith. So a dozen verses into chapter 4, here's a quick summary of what Paul's letter has said so far. Galatians, you are deserting the gospel that I shared with you, and it really is the true gospel. You're made right with God, you receive the Holy Spirit, and you're adopted into God's family by your faith in Jesus, not by obeying a series of ethical and ritual commands both the scriptures and your shared experience show this to be true so why would you turn back to your old ways and this takes us up to our text today starting in chapter 4 verse 12 and it sticks out like a sore thumb so turn with me please to galatians 4 starting in verse 12 and we'll read through verse 20 galatians 4 12 through 20 Listen carefully with me to what God's word says. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead... You welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people who are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. So at first blush, given the rest of the letter, Our text today doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't add anything to Paul's main thesis in the letter. His main thesis in the letter is that we're justified by faith and not by the law. This text doesn't expand on that. It doesn't explain it more clearly. It doesn't advance or support Paul's argument at all. In fact, immediately after this text, Paul goes right back into supporting his main argument again. It's almost like, oh, right, anyway, as I was saying... And he gets back into his main argument. And as I was researching this, many Bible scholars and commentators, as they look at this text, they describe it as an erratic outburst. Paul drops his argument for a minute and he goes off on a tangent. So go ahead, if you get 15 minutes, go ahead, reread the book. Reread it and skip chapter 4, 12 through 20 and go right from 411 to 421. And you, you won't miss a beat. In fact, the letter will hang together a bit better. So it seems a fair question to ask, why is this here? But to do that, I want to take a look first and see what it's saying. What is Paul actually saying here? Because the first thing we notice as we read this is we see a change of tone. He starts off in verse 12 by pleading with the Galatians. I plead with you, brothers and sisters. There's no strong rebuke here, no careful articulation of theology or scripture. Paul is begging them, and affectionately, as brothers and sisters. It's a change of tone. And what's he pleading for? He's saying, become like me, for I became like you. Paul is referring to how he's described himself up to this point in the letter, right? He's described himself as an advocate for the true gospel, He's opposed other Christians who were obeying the law. He's explained how he's died to the law so he might live for God. He lives by faith, not by the law. He wants them to live like that. So saying, I became like you, shows that he's not just talking down to them either. He's putting themselves on equal footing with them. I became like you. Let's be partners together. And he closes, you did me no wrong. You haven't wronged me. I don't take personally what you're doing by rejecting my teaching. Whatever you plan to do, I have not been personally wronged. It's almost like he's declaring that he's not out for retribution, for some personal offense, as he wrote this letter. So that's the first section. Friends, I beg you, stand firm to the true gospel like I do. Let's be in this together. This isn't about me. In the second piece, in verses 13 through 16, Paul is going to fondly reminisce and remember when he first met the Galatians, and he wonders what happened. He says it was due to an illness that he met them, and by all means, the Galatians would have been inclined to reject him, and back in Paul's time, illness was thought of as an affliction sent by the gods to those who deserved punishment. At very best, it was a sign of weakness. But surprisingly, the Galatian church welcomed him and welcomed his message, even though it was a trial to them, which is remarkable. And so, so what happened, Paul wonders? You would have torn your eyes out for me, eyes, the most sensitive part of the body. This evinces a, a deeply loving and sacrificial relationship that he had. But will I be your enemy now that I'm telling you the truth? Friends, I beg you, stand firm to the true gospel like I do. Let's be in this together. This isn't about me. Remember how you cared for me at the beginning? You would have done anything for me, no matter the cost. What happened? Finally, in verse 17, Paul finishes with this impassioned rebuke. He says, these people who are preaching this false gospel to you are up to no good. They're not in it for you. And his closing is, My dear children, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth. Yeah, I read this, this commentary on this verse, and it said that in Paul's time, labor pains were thought to be the worst pains humans experienced. And I thought to myself... Like, wow, how insightful. Like, no kidding, right? Yeah, moms, right? I mean, come on. Of course, how has that changed? I mean, I've never been in labor, but I've seen it three times. And I'll tell you what, it's probably still the, one of the worst pains that humans experience. But even worse, back then, it was life threatening because labor often resulted in death. And so Paul is expressing life threatening agony over this situation. And he says, I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. He's at a loss. He's in a confused state of mind. He doesn't get it. He's perplexed. It it doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, he wants to be there and see them, to speak with them face to face. Has it ever ever happened to you? I mean, you have a, a dear friend, you have a family member, and you've heard that they've just gotten into some kind of trouble. And maybe, maybe you've walked with them for some time, you've helped them out of some struggle, and they're back on the right track, things are looking great, A time goes by, and, and you hear that they've regressed through the grapevine somehow. They're, they went back to that destructive relationship. They, they started drinking again. They stopped going to counseling. They've done something that's just out of character, and you're, you're baffled, you're dumbfounded, why would they do this? I thought, I thought we talked about this. You were doing so well. What happened? I mean, do, do you feel a sense of how you'd long to just see them face to face, how an email or a phone conversation just wouldn't? You just want to look at them and, what's going on? I don't understand it. This isn't, this isn't like you. We, talk, we work through this. Friends, I beg you, stand firm to the true gospel like I do. Let's be in this together. This isn't about me. Remember how you cared for me at the beginning? You would have done anything for me, no matter the cost. What happened? This crowd you're running with, it's no good for you. And it's killing me to hear about it. I wish I could talk to you in person because I just don't understand. This encapsulates what Paul is saying here. And so let's, let's ask that question again. Why is this text here? And maybe you're starting to see the answer, and don't miss it, because it is supremely important. If we didn't have these eight verses in this book, we would lose something, And, and the Galatians might have lost it too. Without these eight verses, we would lose Paul's heart you'd miss the real reason why he wrote this letter i mean yes he's correcting false teaching but why is he correcting false teaching it's because he loves the galatians this text shows us paul's heart for the galatians you know earlier on i suggested we could we could leave this text out and not miss it But what would this letter be like without it? I mean, if you read through Galatians, just think about how forceful Paul is in this letter. Chapter 1, 6 through 7. I'm astonished that you're so quickly turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Chapter 1, 8 through 9. Let the people who preach a different gospel be cursed. Chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Verse 3, are you so foolish? 4.11, I fear for you as if somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Chapter 5, verse 2, mark my words. Chapter 5, verse 12, I wish that these preachers of the false gospel would emasculate themselves. Chapter 6, verse 11, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Without this short section... You have this forceful letter filled with rebuke and persuasive arguments and sound doctrine, but no love, no heart. There would be plenty of passion for the truth, but no passion for the people. It's just the doctrine police setting the wayward right again. You keep this text in, and it's a brother. It's a friend. It's someone who loves them, who's in agony over them, who has their best interests in mind, and he's pleading for them to turn back to the truth. So the text actually fits in just fine, right? And my friend should get a new Bible. We understand where Paul is coming from, and we see in this text a true pastor's heart. Paul actually cares about these people. He actually loves them. It's not about him. I mean, he says that. You've done me no wrong. It's not just about being right. He doesn't just have a theological axe that he has to grind. He's in agony because he loves them. He gets what's at stake. This is what you were created for, right? That the great and long-awaited redemption, salvation from sin and death Life real life the life you were made for is offered to you as a gift to receive free of cost And if you don't get that all is lost If if you turn away from this gospel Christ is worthless to you He says in chapter 5 verse 2 if you add something to the gospel you lose the whole thing Because if Christ isn't enough then nothing's enough Uh, what, What more is needed? Jesus, God incarnate, perfect in word, thought, and deed, holy human, holy divine, lives the perfect life we were meant to live, dies the sinner's death that we were meant to die, rises from the dead so we can be fully forgiven, redeemed, have new life in him. What is lacking from that? Yeah, you know, the death and resurrection of God's only son gets us about 80% of the way there. I need to add my works to it for the last 20%. Jesus plus the law, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus missionary work, Jesus plus serving in the church, Jesus plus reading my Bible every day, Jesus plus tithing, Jesus plus seminary, Jesus plus faith group. If you add something to it, you forsake it altogether. And Paul says this, if righteousness could be attained by the law, then Christ died for nothing. No, he says, you're missing it. You're going back to slavery, The minute you add something to Jesus, you're back at the beginning. How much more is needed now? How much more is enough? You're headed back to hopelessness, to rules you can never fulfill. Don't do it, Paul says. Don't exchange the truth and freedom and adoption and life and forgiveness for lies and slavery and abandonment and death. Paul gets what's at stake. And because of his love for the Galatian church, he becomes unglued. So this is Paul's heart. This is the source of his intensity and his passion in this letter. It's his love for the Galatians. So good for Paul, right? And good for the Galatians too. Wow, awesome. What a guy, right? But, I mean, what do do we do with that as we see this in this text? As Paul shows us this. What does the text Tell us today. And I want to submit to you that it shows us that sharing the gospel requires sharing out of love. Sharing the gospel requires sharing out of love. Let me say it another way love is a necessary component for sharing the gospel. Let me say it negatively. If you're not sharing the gospel out of love, you're not sharing the gospel. Because sharing the gospel requires sharing out of love. Paul shows us this in the text today. He's the, the picture of speaking the truth in love, which is his own phrase that he used in the letter to the Ephesians. He's in agony because the ones he loves are in danger of exchanging the truth for a lie to their present and eternal peril. Sharing the gospel requires sharing out of love. It's Paul's basis, and it should be ours. It's our starting point. And honestly, we're never going to be effective without it. We're never going to be effective as we share the truth of God without love. And let me give you three reasons why we must share the gospel out of love. We need love's purpose. Love's power and love's persuasion. Love's purpose, power, and persuasion. We need love's purpose. The gospel is God's plan to set all of creation right again. And this includes the restoration of our relationship with him so we may enjoy him forever in a perfect existence that lacks no good thing. So the the gospel, this good news, is for the salvation and flourishing of a human being for all eternity. So, like, what other reason is there to tell somebody about this if not for love? Do you share good news with people you don't like? You know, Billy, I'm at best apathetic to your very existence. In fact, it's more than likely that I'd rejoice over your misfortune. You're dumb as a mule and twice as ugly. But anyway, let me tell you about an unquenchable source of joy, hope, and life, which will last all eternity, that is your free gift to receive from the Creator for whom you've longed all your life. Right? That doesn't add up. Right? You don't, you don't preach the gospel. You don't advocate for it. You don't suffer for it. You don't obsess over it just to be Right? Just to show you're smarter or better, to put others down, to win arguments, to affirm yourself, to make your life better, to make God happy with you, to win your salvation, to get something out of people, to feel vindicated among your church friends, to feel justified, to check the box in your Christian to-do list. All these things are about you. Love isn't about that. Love isn't about you. By definition, it's about others. You share the gospel because it's the power of salvation for those who believe. It's our only hope. And there's no sense in sharing it if you don't love the person with whom you're sharing. You need love's purpose, and secondly, you need love's power. You need love's power. I, I would guess that all, of all of us in here, we we love somebody, at least one person, it, very deeply. You love them, or many people in your life: your your spouse, your children, your parents a dear friend, all the above, and you know in your heart you are never going to give up on somebody you love. You will labor, strive, advocate, hope, pray for their good, for their sake, for their flourishing when you love somebody. In fact, you know you've grown cold to somebody, that you've stopped loving them, when you start to write them off, right? You stop caring. Go ahead, let them ruin their lives. I don't care anymore. Go ahead, be miserable, I'm done with you. Let them, let them go to hell. Whatever, they deserve it. You don't pursue them anymore. You don't long for their thriving. You don't rejoice when they rejoice and mourn when they mourn. You've lost love for them. If you're sharing the gospel Love is the only thing that's going to keep you after them. You need love's power. Love is why you'll be broken for the lost. It'll keep you up at night. You'll pray your guts out as you should. You'll sacrifice anything. You'll forsake any comfort, go to any length, just to see a soul come to salvation. We need love's power. And finally, we need love's persuasion. In, in today's environment, if you don't have love, you've, you've immediately cut off the branch you're sitting on. Because there isn't a person alive today, especially in the West, who needs another person trying to convince them of their ideas. There are so many controversial and polarizing issues in our world. Do we really need another one? And without love, You're just another voice in that cacophony of sound and sales pitches. This is 1 Corinthians 13 and Paul. You can speak with the voice of angels, but if you don't have love, you're just a clanging gong. It's more noise. Impeach Trump, Clinton's emails, gun control, global warming, safer retirement, eat organic. The media can't be trusted. The government can't be trusted. Kurt Cobain was murdered. Elvis faked his death exercise twice a day, and on and on and on. How many truth claims do we hear every day out of the noise? It's absolutely overwhelming. But what happens if you convince somebody that you actually love them, you actually care for them? I mean, think of how differently they receive your message. I mean, how do you respond when somebody you've never met tries to convince you to change your worldview. What about your best friend? What about your spouse? What about your parents? Somebody who you knew was in it for you. They want the best for you. Maybe you don't believe like they do, but there's no doubt in your mind that they love you. They want the best for you. How are you going to respond to that person Versus the guy who just has another soapbox to stand on for some unknown reason. Right? We've all experienced that, right? You know What you're saying, buddy, might be right, but I don't really care because you're being a jerk about it. I don't, I don't think you actually care about me, so I don't want to hear what you have to say. If you call yourself a Christian, think of the person or people who led you to Jesus. I mean, were they total strangers? Were they trusted friends? or? Parents or mentors, I mean, I'd guess that even if they were new in your lives, you trusted them to some degree. You believed that they loved you in some measure. They were in it for you. They weren't just selling you something. And if you've shown somebody that you love them, you've already, you've already won half the battle. Love is it's persuasive in itself, right? It makes the gospel you share with them more believable, it makes it more attractive, and it completely undermines all the suspicion and conspiracy theories and stereotypes and Bible thumpers, hate mongers, whatever. All that garbage completely cuts that off, right? Loving others is in itself, that, that is preaching the gospel in a way, right? It's, it's showing it. This is what true love looks like. The love God has for us, it costs nothing and sacrifices everything For our good. We need love's persuasion. Because sharing the love, the gospel, requires sharing out of love. We need love's purpose, love's power, and love's persuasion. But I really just kind of created another problem for us, right? Because how do you how do you muster up love for people? How do you just do that? It's not easy, right? So how do we respond to this, to what Paul shows us here? What you can only truly love if you hold on to the gospel yourself. The gospel is what gives us the power and the ability to love. Because we, we can't give what we don't have. And the only way to give God's kind of love, the love that we see supremely in the gospel, is by receiving it yourself. And, and the more we get hold of how deeply loved we are, how supreme the sacrifice God made to get us back, the easier it'll be to love others the same way. You can be free. You don't have to think about yourself. You don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to check off any boxes anymore. You're free. You're taken. You're loved. It's done. It's, it's nothing can pluck you from his hand. You don't have to focus on yourself anymore. You're free to focus outward, to love, to love others. So by receiving the love God has for us, you too can love others in that same way and proclaim the truth of the gospel. Because sharing the gospel requires sharing out of love. So as we respond today, let me suggest a couple of things to think about and pray about. And the band can come on up and start playing. But, but first of all, if you, if you call yourself a Christ follower, a Christian, if you've heard and received the good news that Jesus has won your salvation forever and you entrust your eternal soul to him and him alone, let's fan that flame this morning. Pray for God to fan that flame in your heart for all the people who are, are just like you used to be at one point in your life. They're just like you used to be. They're without hope. They're desperately in need of a Savior. And by God's grace in your life, somehow, somebody or some group of people, they loved you enough to share the good news with you, that there is a Savior, and his name is Jesus. Jesus. Ask God to fan that flame, to to fill your heart with love for others so you can share his good news with them. Because sharing the gospel requires sharing out of love. And second, it'd be be silly if if I didn't offer this time also as an opportunity to receive God's love. And maybe even for the first time. I mean, if somebody brought you here today Chances are that they they care about you. They love you. They actually care. You're here because they wanted you here because it's for your good. There's something they want you to hear. They want the best for you, just like God does. So don't wait on that. If you feel your heart stirred, and there's nothing magic to that, confess your sin, your need of a Savior. Receive Jesus into your heart. If you've already done that. Receive God's love afresh again, so you can you can pour it out onto others as you share the gospel with the world that needs to hear it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, God, for loving us and for loving us so well, and for showing us, God, the supreme importance of sharing your good news. Out of love, And so, Lord, I pray you would help us to burn with the same passion uh, that you have for others who need to hear about you, who need to hear the truth in a world full of lies, a world full of truth claims, a world full of noise, God. Help our message of hope and salvation to stand out because of the way we love people. May it never be called into question, Lord God, that we love others well. And God, we acknowledge we cannot do that of our own. We're selfish and broken and just self-centered. Help us to get over that, Lord, to get over ourselves, to receive the love you have for us and just let that pour out onto others as we share your good news. Thank you so much for your word. Would you bless this time of response now in Jesus name